Good morning, everyone. This, uh, I was looking at this stage. It's a nice beginning on my part. Uh, looking at this stage, and I was like, not the best uh, morning to go take me seriously, right? <laughs> actually should be a pretty good um, oh, part of a prop for what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to have you turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. What we've been doing as a church family is just walking through uh, this letter to the Ephesians and trying to draw out uh, themes. Um, But while you're making your way there, one of the things I wanted to bring up is what we do steady state here is we talk about the gospel a lot. Gospel just means good news. God has good news for us. And so the the gospel, the good news that uh, God calls you and me to receive is this. That while God made everything and He's righteous and holy and everything that we have is due Him, uh, we've fallen away from Him because of our sin. But He's made a way because of Jesus. Not something you can accomplish on your own. It's something that you have to receive that God has done for you through Jesus. And here's what Jesus did. He became one of us so that He could represent us. Lived a perfectly righteous life and went to the cross to bear our sin and our shame This is the great exchange so that we could bear his righteousness and his standing before God the Father. And what Scripture tells us to do is repent and believe. So we talk about that and celebrate how good God is all the time here. And then what comes out of that is Jesus commands people, you know, listen, if you follow me, if you believe in me, what you need to do is to show that through baptism. Share that with your community um, show that to the world in baptism. So if you're interested, or if you've been, you've been around for a while and you're thinking, you know, um, I have these questions about the gospel and what does it mean to believe in and follow Jesus, you know, grab Brad or me. We'd love to talk to you about that. Or, hey, I've never been baptized and I've got questions about that. You know, what does that mean? Love to talk to you about that. So grab uh, Brad or me and we would love to chat with you about that, okay? Um, So let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. This is God's word. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, this is God's Word. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, I just I, I know you're with us. Pray that you'd help me serve well, just so that we could understand the word, grow from it, walk with you more closely. Um, we ask that you would do work uh, in our lives through your spirit um, to bring you glory and to help our friends and neighbors in the world. Uh, you know, to that end, help us to get what is in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a little context is in order here. This, 
what we've already covered in Ephesians. There's kind of a were and an are. You look at chapter 2 in Ephesians, there's a kind of, you were described in a past tense way and in a present way, present tense way, a were and an are. So before, if you look at chapter 2, you know, Paul would uh, put it this way, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and, um, you know, estranged from God, right? That was before, that's what you were, but now you have been, you are made alive together with Christ and forgiven. So another before, before uh, you were far off from God, alienated from Him with no hope of being included. But now because of Jesus, you are included. You've been brought to the table. You've been brought near and made part of His family. So there's a were and an are. Now everything has changed. You're not Jekyll and Hyde. I want you to hear, this is very important. You're not Jekyll and Hyde. You're not dead and alive, you're not condemned and forgiven, you're not far off and near, you're alive, you've been brought near, you are forgiven, okay? There's a before you, uh, a used to be you, and there's a now you, this new you that gets described here. This is a spiritual reality. This is done. God has declared it. But experientially, there's a tension Every Christian experiences or faces, okay, that we, we have to live out. And it's this. And so it's like the stage here. You're not completely there. You're not completely done. God has declared it. It's so. This is your past. There's a break. But as you walk it, there's, there's, it's like you have to grow into it and bloom into it. And through time and strain and resilience to find yourself experiencing it more and more. And go through a process. Because you look at it, you go like, listen, in the Bible, what I was was clear. You know, dead and far off, estranged from God. Um, And, you know, I know that from my experience. I, I got to see the person in the mirror. I know exactly what that person did. And the Bible describes who I am now very clearly. Alive, forgiven, at the table included. But this kind of in-between, where I'm not yet done, it's where most of the frustration comes in. And sometimes this encroaching despair. And so, that's what this passage is about. So, let me say a couple of things as we, you know, we're going to look to get in the passage, and this will be in your handout and the overhead, but there are a couple of things I want to say. I want to do a quick, quick run-through run on it, but one of the things I want you to get is that whenever you read this passage... The easiest point to get is the most important point to get. Like, it's a pretty dense little passage here. But if you just look at the passage and you go, what's the basic idea? It's right there up front. The big point is, you know, the used to be you? Make a break from that. Right? God has declared it. He started you on that by His Spirit and by His grace. You need to live that out more fully um, to live your now you, this real you, this forever you. Now to do that, you have to strip off some things. Sometimes the negative comes first. Repentance and faith, there is a turning away from what you were and a turning to what you've been called to. All right. So look, look just to keep your finger in the text a little bit. It was in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's pointing to the past. Don't do this anymore. No longer. And then in verse 22, 
he refers to their former manner of life. There's something old there that needs to be left. There needs to be a break. Now, the problem is that most of us say, listen, I get that. I get what God says. I get what we, I need to do. But if, I feel like the old me is a sticky version of me. Right? Kind of lingers and clings. And I have trouble shaking off some of the aspects of the old me. It's frustrating. It's hard. And there's a lot to learn. And what the Bible says in a nutshell, it's this. Right. Stay at it. Okay, there's grace. Uh, oh, you're finding it difficult? Yeah, join the club. This is the way it's supposed to be, and you're going to grow through this. Sometimes God has a way of taking you through things so that you'll have, and they're hard. You would not choose them on your own, so that you will have taste buds, spiritual though they may be, for something you would have never appreciated otherwise. I'll give you an example of this. Some of you are very tender-hearted about how people live now, but that's new for you. It's new for you because trouble came into your life where you thought it was all up to you, didn't you? You thought, if I'm wise and I'm spiritual, I'll never be weak. I will never struggle. Somebody close to me who I love will never drift. I'll never go through this relational break or whatever. And then it happened to you, didn't it? And all of a sudden, you see somebody else in that same situation, and you don't go, well, if they had only done this, right? Your heart's a little softer. Problem is, if you have a hard heart, um, God hasn't broken you enough yet. But if you're his, it's on the way, okay? Because you've you got to have it. So as you go through this kind of experience between what's old and what's new, God takes you through a process Right, so, so, that, so that you will embody this new life. But you're going to have to strain and strive and be resilient, and it's going to take some time. So here's the basic flow of thought, and then we'll, then we'll unpack it and get into the handout. The, the, the flow of thought is you need to leave the old you, verse 17, and there's a negative explanation for this, and that is the old you was based on deceit, and it leads you into degradation, dead end and ruin. And there's a positive explanation for this, and that is that the new you is based on the truth that leads to renewal and recreation and life, uh, that you can give glory to God. That's where your energy needs to go. So let's unpack that. So, so we'll do it in three parts, and we'll kind of do it like the flow of thought there. What's the big idea? This is the main part that you, at the easiest point is the most important point. Verse 17, leave the old you. He, he knows that while God has declared that break, that most of us are experiencing the lingering aspects of the way we used to live. So this is the, the used to be you, right? Let me point out a few things about verse 17. Let's read it again, and then I'll, I'll point out these few things. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Remember that walk is like the manner of life, Okay. But three things that we could point out right away is, first of all, this carries the authority of Jesus. When he says, uh, this I say and um, testify in the Lord, he's hearkening back to chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, hey, I'm, I'm, my name is Paul. Uh, I'm an apostle of Jesus, which means I'm his messenger. I'm his representative. And so what I say, I'm representing Jesus. I'm not, really, I'm not here writing this letter as Paul. I'm here writing this letter as Jesus' representative, you know, a person he's commissioned to do this very thing. 
And so you, you, you're supposed to receive it that way. And so this carries the authority of Jesus. And in other words, this is beyond the helpful life coach who's saying, you know, I think your life would be better if you would leave the old you. This is a command, and it's from Jesus. Say, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should know this is exactly what Jesus has told you to do. Following him, it looks like this. It looks like leaving the old you. And then there's this phrase. I mean, this is a little bit obvious, but I think it's worth us pointing out. Where he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer do this. Now, that implies a few things. It means that they used to do this. If you know, like, if you're to no longer do this, that's what you had been doing. So this is in their past. But it also means that it has to stop, that they shouldn't do it anymore. So he's, again, he's talking about this, this break, this leaving uh, the old you. Um, one more little thing. The Gentiles. I, I personally find this funny where he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And the futility of their minds. You must no longer walk. You know who they are ethnically? They're Gentiles. Isn't that funny? That this had at one time been their primary um, source of identity. And it's as though, their ethnicity, it's as though, consistent with the theme in Ephesians, he's saying your ethnic identity, so-called racial identity, your ethnic identity can never bear enough to be your primary identity. And, and beyond that, when the gospel comes into your life, you get a new primary identity that replaces and supersedes any former identity. And that's a new life in Jesus. So you're not primarily what you used to be. Certainly not primarily the color of your skin or where you grew up. Uh, you're more than that. You, you are more than your so-called race. Um, but it is weird. Your ethnic category is not your defining category. So lead the old you. Let me point out what this does not mean. We'll, we'll get to what it does mean in a bit, but what it does not mean are these kind of superficial and, and um, incidental type things. Like, for example, your job. You know, maybe you just don't like your job because you don't like your job, but what, what you don't do is you don't go, well, I had this job, but that was before Jesus, and so... Now, now I'm going to leave that. Or, you know, Bill's always been a good friend of mine, but that was before Jesus, so sorry, Bill, you got to go. Or, you know, um, a hobby. You know, I used to be way into sci-fi, uh, but that was, that was all before Jesus, and now there's Jesus, so so long Star Wars and good night Star Trek, you know? I mean, those are superficial type of things, right? There's good hobbies and bad hobbies that just may be that irrespective of your walk. He's talking about something deeper and way more meaningful. Leave the old you. Now, how does he explain that? He does it in a negative way, in a positive way. Um, the first is the negative. It's because of the ruining power of the lies. Verses 18 and 19 and 22. Let's just look at those two, or the, those, those sections again. Verse 18, these are the Gentiles uh, who operate in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then uh, look at verse 22. You'll put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So not like a glowing review of the former you. 
right? Like, like great guy, but this is a better version. This is you 2.0. No, no, ruins, right, to, to, to something worthwhile and vital. Um, notice the features of the old you. Uh, big one. They can't get their minds right. Notice their, their minds operate in futility. In other words, they don't work. Um, their understanding is darkened. There's no light. They can't see. Um, they're ignorant. They just don't know things. Um, you know, that they can't get their minds right. And their hearts are messed up. It says at the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19 that their hearts are hard. And then he uses another uh, phrase that's synonymous with that where he talks about their callousness. Right? They become callous. So we think of just English to, to spiritual meaning here. I want you to think about a way we use it that is not the way he means it here. Sometimes we mean callous as just simply unfeeling. So we could say it about you know, physically callous or emotionally callous. And we just mean that things don't hurt you. Uh, that way. So, you know, on an emotional level, that guy's really a callous guy. It means, you know, you, you know your, your cat gets run over and he's like, whatever, right? He says, no feeling, he just doesn't feel it. Um, which That may be the morally right emotional position to take if it's a cat. <laughs> uh, dog's different story. Um, but the callous is like this unfeeling, like it does, doesn't affect you that way or somebody who works with his hands or you work out or something like that um, if you're not used to doing that your hands are really tender and it hurts but but as you do it you build up calluses and it helps you not feel pain if you're doing pull-ups or you're swinging a hammer or something like that doesn't mean it that way here's what he means by callous here he means stupid like when, when you're callous, like when we say it in our, in our vernacular, we mean that the pain doesn't sink in. He says, what's he talking about here? He's talking about new life and truth. And these people are callous. And so what's good and true and lively doesn't sink in. They're too obtuse to get it. So whenever he talks about them being darkened in their understanding so that they don't see and they're ignorant and all that, he means they're so callous, it doesn't even occur to them. They're spiritually stupid. Um, it also, not only can they not get their minds right and are their hearts messed up, but this shows up in what they do, and it leads to ruin. If you look at verse 22, he, re he refers to their former manner of life and that old self that is corrupt through deceitful desires. When something is corrupt, um, it's, it's away from its good, pure design. Right? Something, something has come in and now it's rotten or affected, like poisoned or whatever. So you might, uh, you might see an apple that looks beautiful on the outside. But once it's really rotten on the inside, it doesn't matter. Sooner or later, what's on the inside is going to get to the outside. It's corrupt. It's, what, what it means is that it's degenerating. It's not renewing. It's not, it's not being recreated. It's going the other direction. That's what they were doing. There's this degradation. Corruption leads to degradation, right? Or it shows degradation. Now, my point, I said, you know, right? Leave the old you. Why? Um, because of the ruining power of the lies. The corruption shows up. But what are the lies? Look at verse 18. Who are they? Who were you before you came to know Jesus? 
alienated from the life of God. You know what the lies are? It's this variation or that variation of this idea. There is a good place for you to be where you can flourish apart from God. There's this idea, and it shows up in all kinds of you know, versions, but it's this idea, you know what? I can find this, this good life for me where I can flourish apart from God. It's the idea that God is kind of a problem because, I don't know, he asserts himself as God. And I would rather sit in his chair. But where are the lies? They are easy to enter into and hard to live. Though the first couple of stops might do it for you, uh, they'll never lead you where you need to go. That always take you to ruined. Okay, so that's the negative explanation. Let's get to the positive explanation. Because of the renewing power of the truth. You see this in verses 20 and 21, and then more in verses 23 and 24. Look at those verses with me. 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then in verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, Why do you leave the old you? Why do you need to shake the versions, the sticky aspects of that off? Because you got Christ, and Christ is the truth. And renewal and your new self has come through him, and you're renewed uh, in the image of God, and this guides you into the good, the righteous and, and the holy. So remember the main point, though. You know, leave your used to be you. There's a version of you that's in the past, the used to be you, and you need to leave that. Leave the old you uh, because of ruin and because of renewal. Lies will lead you to degradation and ruin, and the truth will leads to renewal and recreation. So how do we break that down so that we get, the, we get it from the abstract maybe a little bit more? Let me give you three things that are, uh, if, you, if you say, what do I have to do to do this more? Let's, let's do that. Let's take this passage and make sure that we get these kind of three elements so that we understand it and we live it out well. What do you have to do? Number one, You have to accept the reality of spiritual polarization. You have to accept the reality of spiritual polarization. That's what I mean by that. There are two sides. They are polarized, right? They are differing. They are antithetical. They're opposing. They have irreconcilable differences. And this is in a spiritual, this is a spiritual reality. There is no good merger uh, ahead in the future to try to syncretize these two sides uh, is not realistic it's not appropriate and it's disloyal to Jesus because it misrepresents who you are to be on one side of it in this world now this does not mean when I say there are two sides that there's them and they're the enemy and you're to fight the way the world fights this does not mean that you're to forget everything that Jesus told you to do in terms of loving your neighbor. So you shouldn't fail to love the people around you, uh, work for a better neighborhood, be good to the people around you, um, you know, try to do the right thing, be at peace with people, um, try to win them to Jesus, right? It doesn't mean they're on the opposite side like that. This is a spiritual reality that we're talking about that is constant in the spiritual reality and sometimes shows up in culture. Showing up in ours right now, by the way. 
What it does mean is that these two sides are different. They're in opposition to each other and that this will never change. And you have to accept this. Like, like Satan isn't going to come and go, you know what, Jesus? I think you were right. So can we work this out? The two sides being represented and the, there's not a marriage in the future. You belong to one side if you're a believer and what, what you should do is have a ministry of mercy and a ministry of worship to where you acknowledge the reality and the supremacy of God because He's good and He's true and try to win people who don't yet know Jesus. But you can't put those pieces together from the two sides. Um, you have to accept this. No, notice the contrast between these two irreconcilable sides in the passage. In verse 22, there is corruption that leads to degeneration. And in verse 24, there's the opposite of that. Renewal and recreation. Verse 18, you have people alienated from the life of God. Verse 24, you have people created after the likeness of God. Verse 19, you have people dominated by their desires. In verse 24, you have a life that's going in the exact opposite direction, a life of righteousness and holiness. Verse 22, they've got deceitful desires, right? Lying, desires that lie to them, and they believe it. In verse 21, you have a Savior who's the truth. This is different. They're not about the same thing. They don't want the same thing. They're not striving for the same thing. And sometimes, like I said, this spiritual polarization shows up in culture. So let me give you an example of it from the second century and you can kind of see it now. So there were misunderstandings about Christianity in the second century. They lived in a polarized, or I'm sorry, in a pluralistic society. In other words, a lot of different people, different backgrounds believe different things. So they, they didn't have all the same traditions. You grew up, I mean, the older you are, the more likely you grew up in kind of an American tradition where all of that's somewhat uniform. And certainly in middle America, that's what you experienced. In the second century, if you were a Christian, um, that wasn't the reality. You, all kinds of people believed all different kinds of things. And if you were a Christian, you were a minority. But there was a basic misunderstanding about what Christians believe. Like, like for example, their love feasts were seen as uh, uh, orgies. They were considered atheists because they rejected uh, the plurality of pagan gods. Um, they were deemed cannibals because of misunderstanding about the Lord's Supper, and so on. Here's the point. The world around them in the second century viewed them as immoral. They were bad to believe in Jesus. Today, we live in a pluralistic context. Christians are a minority, but noticed. Um, there is misunderstanding or rejection of what we believe. And increasingly, and I, I don't have to make the case for this, and I don't have the time to make the case for this, I don't think, but if you've got questions about it, come grab me. Increasingly, there's a difference between saying, I just don't believe what you believe, and increasingly so, looking at, at uh, people who follow Jesus, saying if you believe in him and you believe what the Bible says, you're immoral to do so. There is a, this polarization is a given. Sometimes it shows up in culture, sometimes it doesn't. But this spiritual reality is, is a given. It is non-negotiable. It will not change until the return of Jesus. So just so that you, if you see it in the passage and I showed you the contrast, I want you to know Paul assumes it here. By the time you get to chapter 6, he's not going to assume it anymore. 
He's going to work it out in spiritual warfare. You could go to the book of James, where James says, you know what we need to do? I need to get this right in your mind because you live in the world, you need to love your neighbor, but you need to know that friendship with the world is equal to hostility to God. Why? Because of spiritual polarization. In other words, to align yourself with the mindset and the values of the world is to position yourself in opposition to what God is about and what he's doing in the world. Or Jesus himself, where he said, listen, the world hates me. And if the world hates me, they're going to regard you the same way. That word hate is a strong word, but it's his word. Why does he say that? Well, one aspect of that is spiritual polarization. Sometimes you see this. You you see people um, who go through something big, a loss, and they grieve it. And, uh, you know, in, in school of psychology, it's a real famous list of, you know, the stages of grief. People deny, like if you go through a big loss, you deny, like, no, this isn't real. You get mad, you fight back um, until you finally accept. But one of those stages that doesn't work, you can't land there, is bargaining, negotiating. And the reason is the person who suffered the loss wants, to, wants this middle ground kind of position. They don't want to accept this loss has occurred. So they want to bargain. See this sometimes spiritually with people who Jesus is called and they, they kind of look at the imprint that the world has had on them and they don't want to leave it all behind and so they, they kind of want to bargain. Listen, if you're going to live effectively for Jesus and faithfully to Jesus, you have to accept this as a reality. Here's the second thing, the second element. What do you have to do? You have to steward your mind because it's the key to everything else. Steward your mind uh, it's, it's the key to everything else. Um, because your mind is, by God's design, what you use to see. The most important things you see are what you see mentally, what you come to understand as true, and uh, what you decide. And this regardless of whether you're a believer or not, right? You, we saw the contrast in the passage, but the main contrast he uses here is the mind. And the reason is the mind guides the life. So you can see this on two sides. Notice their problem, they can't get their minds right. Well, why is that? Verse 17, their minds are futile. Minds don't work. Verse 18, their understanding is darkened. They don't see things. They're ignorant, verse 18, so that their life is corrupt because they've been deceived by their desires. In other words, they believe, mind again, right? Something that's not true, and it leads them into degradation. What does God do for you? He gets your mind right. Verses 20 and 21, you learned Christ, heard about Christ, and were taught about Christ. And ultimately, you've come to see that the truth is Jesus. It's in Jesus. So your mind gets renewed, verse 23, and that leads you into a life based on what's good, true, and real. So think about it this way. My mind is part of an, it's like it's part of an ecosystem. There are other things like actions, attitudes, emotions, mindsets, stuff like that, desires. But my mind is sort of the water in this ecosystem. And if the water is pure, it helps the rest of the environment flourish. It informs what's going on in the rest of the environment. But if the water is poisoned, it also affects the rest of the environment and poisons it, right? Your mind's like that. It informs your actions, your emotions, and so on. Let me tell you how... This is one fundamental of stewarding your mind, but how critical this one fundamental is. So years ago, I was in high school. I grew up in rural Oklahoma. There are certain things that we didn't do where I lived. We didn't have the money. 
didn't have the access to it and stuff like that. But I had a friend in high school. We, we kind of moved to a bigger city, Tulsa area. My best friend in high school was a guy named Chris. And his family had a, a place out on the lake. So he just grew up out on the lakes, water skiing and stuff like that. So, you know, we were great buddies and we fished together. We played baseball together and so on. And he asked me to go out to the lake with him one time. I was like, sure. Well, the more we did that, he said, you know, you need to learn how to water ski. I was thinking, you know, I'm reasonably athletic. How hard could it be? You know, you see all these people out there water skiing all the time, right? Just hold on to a rope and stand up. What's the big deal? So his dad took me out, his dad and Chris and, and me. So they, you know, I hop out in the back of the boat, you know, and I've got these skis that feel weird and I'm holding on to this rope. And they dragged me all over that little cove in this, this area of the lake for like two hours. I had water in every crevice and like I couldn't see. My eyes were bloodshot. I was exhausted. But I'm, this is before everybody had like a video on their phone. But I'm sure that the, a video of me trying to learn to water ski would have gone viral because, you know, it would have just been hysterical, less hysterical for me. Anyway... It didn't work. I, I didn't learn how to ski. And I don't know, maybe a little while later, uh, we went out again, and one guy who was driving the boat goes, hey, listen, he watched me, and, you know, I was flopping around and all that looking ridiculous. And he goes, listen, here's what I want you to do. You know, you got the skis on, and you, everybody tells you to lean back. Um, you know, he was older than me. He goes, you know, squat down like you're on a toilet. I'm like, that's something I know how to do, right? <laughs> and so squat down, you know, lean back. And sure enough, I mean, the boat takes off. And I'm like, I had this inner sense of elation because for a minute I was on the water about like this, right? And then the guys in the boat start laughing and they're like, you know, now it's time to stand up, right? You know, because I was, I was squatted down the whole way through. There was one fundamental that I, that for me anyway, I needed to incorporate, or I wasn't going to be able to water ski. Here's the fundamental for you, and you got to get this right. If you don't steward your mind and you don't set it on what's really true, you're not going to flourish. You have to steward your mind, and you have to do that in a context where everything around you is not necessarily true. Right? There's a lot of untruth out there, a lot of misleading things. Your mind guides your life. Here's the third one. You have to act on the reality of the new life you have in Jesus you got to do something. So he says it here. Remember, were versus are. There's this old you that used to be you, and there's this new you, this now you because of Jesus. And if you look at the passage, it tells you to do two things. Put off and put on. that interesting? Put off your old self, your used to be you, and put on your new self, your new you that you have because of Jesus. And this is just an ordinary little phrase like get dressed. It's a picture of taking off clothes, that's something you'd put off, or putting on clothes. Now, your life is like that. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. If you you were a civilian and you signed up for the military, you, you you don't wear something like this anymore, right? When you go into service because you're taking on a new life and a new role, you're going to put on a military uniform. It's going to show up in what you, what you wear. It's not appropriate to wear what you used to wear. Um, give you another example with my buddy Chris. We had, we had played baseball together. A lot of our, our time together was on the road going to baseball games and different things like that that we were playing. 
Anyway, one day he was hanging out. We, I think we were through the spring season, and we were in summer league, and he was hanging out at my house. And at my house, the neighbor had a pond out back. And so we stripped down. We were just shorts, maybe some shoes, uh, you know, no shirt, anything like this. And we were, we were noodling for these little, I'm not sure what they were, maybe prehistoric creatures. But they looked like a hybrid between a little catfish and a tadpole. It's part of the fascination. So we're in this little cove of this pretty good-sized pond. We're getting muddy and wet and all this, and we're digging down, and we're, like, grabbing these things up uh, like we're, you know, eight or something like that. We're probably 16, 17 at the time. And all of a sudden, my dad whistles and waves, you know, from our, from our backyard area. And he hollers out and he goes, don't you guys have a game? And I'm, you know, we didn't wear watches back then. We were like, like, what time is it? And we had about 45 minutes to get to the game. We're muddy in shorts and tennis shoes, that's it. So what do we do? Did we, did we rush to the game, you know, shirtless and in, you know, some kind of cutoff shorts or something? No, we rushed to strip off what we had and to put on our baseball uniforms because that's who we were. That's the role we were embodying. The best picture, though, I think I can give you is this. What do you wear? It's kind of a setup. You wear whatever you want. You know, I mean, there's limitations to it. You, but if it's a style, if, it, if it's something you like, if it expresses you, your body type, and so on, whatever you, you wear what you want. What do you wear if you're in prison? You wear what everybody else wears. You wear an orange jumpsuit. And what he's saying is, you used to be a prisoner wearing this orange jumpsuit. So you need to put that off. And then you need to put on the clothes of a free person. You need to put on the clothes of somebody who belongs to Jesus. It would be weird to see somebody who had been released from prison out walking around in an orange jumpsuit. Because that doesn't embody what they are now. So here's the challenge. What do I need to put off that represents the old me, the used to be me, and in what way do I need to put on the new me that represents the now me? The negative comes first, just like you have to get off the couch before you go to the gym. That's why he starts in verse 17, leave the old you, because that'll get in the way if you're trying to do the new. Right? Sometimes you have to take the old skin off to wear the new. So the new you, where Jesus has changed everything. The texts that follow are going to flesh all this out in particular. But here's what I want to ask you, just the general basic question. What is something going on with you that indicates uh, that you need to put off the old you? If, you? if your soul is a city, what's getting in to take over the city? What do you need to fight off or protect yourself against? What gets in that destroys your city and uh, it needs to be the no longer you. And you know that, right? You know that, listen, what I'm doing, what I'm embracing, what I'm about here, actually, actually just represents the world in antagonism against the gospel. What do you need to put off that represents the old you? And what's your prayer, plan, and commitment to do it? And then what is something that exemplifies who you are in Christ now? Because that's a spiritual reality that you need to grow in, and so it represents an opportunity to put on the new you. And what's your prayer, plan, and commitment to do something about that? I want to tell you one last thing as we close, right? That's the challenge, though. Put off and put on. That's the main part of the passage. 
Do you hear something like this and you go, I'm not done. I look like a bunch of bricks internally, spiritually. I look like a bunch of bricks lying around. Need a little boost? I'll give you a little boost. You have big time help. This is not just you. This is not just your effort. This is, just, this is not just your plan. Philippians 1.6, Paul, same guy, writes this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God himself is at work in you, and he's not going to finish until he's done. So you, if you look at yourself and you just go, I'm not done. Right. Stay at it. God is going to be faithful to give you grace to get you there. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Give us uh, the insight um, and, and give us the grace to live this out, to put off the old us, to put on the new us that we, you've made us to be through Jesus. And I pray that you do that kind of work in us for your glory, for our good and our joy um, so that we'll be just one more thing to celebrate. You're, you're true and faithful to do this. Um, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.